And then if you would, say good morning to Pastor Lauren. She's going to take us on our next step in our journey in the Gospel Shape series. Good morning. How are we doing this morning? Good. You guys are way more awake than first service. There's already some feedback. I love that. Hey, like Pastor John just said, we are continuing in our series called The Gospel Shapes, and this has been going on for months now as we've just been discovering what it looks like if the gospel message is true in our life, God's ultimate goal is reconciliation for us. If that's true, then what does it look like to have that gospel message shape every single thing of what we do? And so today I have the privilege of talking to you about how the gospel shapes singleness, which is really important because single people are really important to the body of Christ. And so uh, just for reference, I kind of am like, sitting in between both camps, between single and married today. I'm engaged. We're getting married in May. I'm so pumped. But so I'm like, you can applaud for that. I'm pumped about it. So I kind of sit in both camps. I have been single. I am walking towards marriage. And so uh, I feel like I have a leg to stand on when it comes to this conversation. But at some point, you have to learn how to care about people who are not like you. And so this conversation is important because single people are important to the body of Christ. Amen. Amen. So we're going to jump right on in today. And just so that you have a heads up, I'm going to talk to the single people in the room. Then I'm going to talk to the married people in the room. So if you're like, I'm married, I'm not single, I have no reason to listen. Yeah, you do. So single people in the room, then married people in the room, then everyone. And I'm going to pray and we're going to get out of here. Sound good? Fantastic. All right. So how does the gospel shape our view of singleness if we're single? You guys can flip to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And he's addressing a lot of different relational statuses here. And so we're going to pay attention because that's what we're talking about today, right? So 1 Corinthians 7, 32 through 35, he says, I, this is Paul, he's the one who's writing it, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying to this to you for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. He says this is not to restrict you. Single people, you get to live in undivided devotion to the Lord. What does the gospel say about shaping the life of a single person is live in undivided devotion to the Lord. He's saying that this is a good thing. And I know that in the room there are people who have chosen to be single as a permanent choice, and there are people in the room who desperately wish they weren't single. It's temporary for them. And whether it's permanent or temporary for you, you have an opportunity in this season to live in undivided devotion to the Lord. I remember my first year of Bible college. In fact, it was my first day. I wasn't even a student yet. I was just a little baby freshman at orientation. I'm 18 years old. I'm bright-eyed. I'm bushy-tailed. I'm in Southern California. And I have to sit in an orientation class and like no windows. I'm like, oh. And this professor-looking man walks in the room and he's like, and he gets up on stage and he goes, how many of you know how many hours are in a day? (laughs) And we're all like, 24. He's like, yes, great answer. And we're like, (laughs) he goes, how many of you know how many days are in a week? And we're like, seven. He's like, wow, you guys are brilliant. I'm so glad you came to college. And we're like, (laughs) you know, there's like an emoji where he's smiling, but he's got a little bit of sweat coming out. We're just kind of like, you look really important and you're saying really strange things. And then he just goes for it. He goes, 
So that means you have 168 hours in your week, and on average, most people spend such and such amount of hours sleeping and such and such amount of hours eating and hygiene and da-da-da-da, and we're all just like, and he goes, and for every credit hour you spend in school, you'll spend three hours doing homework. And the whole room went, oh, what? So me, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, 18 years old with 20 credit hours was like, 60 hours? <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm like now sweating and not laughing as much, and everyone in the room is like, <laughs> and he has this pie chart on the screen, and it's like, this much for hygiene, and this much for food, and this much for sleeping, and he goes, so if you think that you're gonna do anything else other than school this semester, you have, what does that say, like five hours? And the whole room was like, <laughs> and I feel like that is the same visual that Paul is using for us right now. He's saying, hey, everybody in life's got a lot of things to handle, right? We gotta feed ourselves. We gotta sleep. We gotta shower. Praise God, we gotta shower, right? Somebody tell the junior hires we gotta shower. <laughs> Sorry, I love them. But he's like, I, I, I picture that if he had the technology, he'd be using a pie chart. And what he's saying is, hey, single people, whether it's temporary or it's permanent, you have an opportunity for your piece of the pie to be bigger in this season of your life. And it's not a restriction, it's actually an opportunity for you to live into that undivided devotion. Married people, you still have a piece of the pie, it's just smaller, so you gotta work harder, right? <laughs> right? Single people get an opportunity to live in undivided devotion to the Lord, and it's a gift and it's an opportunity. The second thing I feel like the gospel says to single people about how the gospel should shape your life is it says you need to water your own dang grass. And you're like, really? Where does it say that? It doesn't say that in scripture, but I believe it communicates to us that we need to water our own dang grass. I'm gonna quote Justin Bieber featuring Big Sean. There's a song and Big Sean sings this line. He says, the grass isn't always green on the other side. It's green where you water it. And every single time I hear that song, I'm normally like bopping out to it or whatever. And every single time I have a pause just for a moment because man, that'll preach in the middle of this song. The grass isn't always green on the other side. It's green where you water it. And I believe that that's the word for those who are single in this room because here's what I know to be true. In my experience when I've been single is that it's really, really easy in seasons of singleness, whether permanent or temporary, for us to allow bitterness and envy and comparison and discontentment to sow really deep roots in our life. And the word of the Lord is saying, you need to water your own dang grass. 1 Corinthians 7, 17, same chapter. He says, nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. So whether permanent or temporary, you gotta live in your own situation. So here's what I mean by water your own dang grass. My mom, I called her on the phone and made sure it was okay that I told this story. My mom is what she calls herself to be, a lawn nerd. My mom is obsessed with grass and mowing lawns. She's crazy, just a little bit, and we love her for it. But I remember moments of my childhood where we'd be driving around, and she'd be like, do you see that man's grass? And my brothers and I are like, nope, not looking at it. To, to be honest, we're really not. She'd be like, oh my goodness, look at the mow lines on that lawn down the street. And she loves grass. My mom literally looks at golf courses, and she's like, I would love to mow that. <laughs> I'm like, mom, you and no one else. You and no one else. I distinctly remember when my aunt and uncle moved into a new house in Washington. We were going on vacation that summer to see them, and my mom was like, they got a new lawnmower. I get to mow their grass. I mean, like that, she, she loves grass. She loves to mow lawns. That's just her jam. She's a lawn nerd. That's what she calls herself. But my mom is also very, very meticulous in planting her own grass. 
So she lives in Arizona. That's where my mom and my dad live. That's where I'm from. So how many of you guys know Arizona's a bit of a different climate than here? Am I right? It's a desert, in case you didn't know. It's a desert. And so here's what my mom knows, is that she wants a really healthy, thriving winter lawn. And in order to have that, you have to start in the fall. And the first thing that you have to do is you have to scalp your grass, which means to cut it very, 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 very short. It looks really ridiculous. And then she has this one tool that sits in our garage my whole life, and it's like this big, and there's like prongs on the end, and the best way that I can describe what it does is that it churns the grass. I don't really know what to call it. If there's a gardener in the room and you want to tell me at the end of service like what that's called, I'd love to know, but it, she just churns the grass with it, and that's the only reason it sits in our garage is once a year when she plants her winter lawn, she churns the scalped grass, and then the next thing that she does is she starts to fertilize it. She buys the right soil for the grass, she buys the right seed for the grass. She buys the right fertilizer. And she's done all this research to know what one works best in her lawn, in her climate, et cetera, et cetera. And then she goes even further and she caution tapes off her lawn because it's always in the fall and it's always near Halloween. And she's like, I will not have these trick-or-treaters ruining my winter lawn. And so she caution tapes her lawn and then she puts it on a very strict watering schedule. And this woman knows she has done her research and guess what happens? every single winter, what grows in our front yard, but a beautiful, luscious green lawn. And so what I know to be true about my mom is that when she's driving around town and she admires somebody's mow lines or she admires somebody's deep green grass, she's not saying it out of a place of bitterness and envy and, content and discontentment. She's saying it out of a place of recognizing the work that needs to be done to water your own dang grass. And I believe that that's the word for anybody, maybe singles in the room, but maybe anybody who's dealing with bitterness and envy in their life. The word is that we need to water our own grass. It's not greener on the other side. It's green where you choose to water it and invest in it. And so single people, whether it's permanent or temporary in your life, you get to water your own grass. You could spend your whole life stretching your neck, looking at the neighbor, tiptoe, making your ankles hurt, making your neck hurt, and going, well, isn't that her grass just beautiful? I wish my grass would look like that. Or translation, you just get to go to weddings and you go, well, aren't you just so happy? And you spend Valentine's Day like this, and you're just like, I hate everybody, and aren't you just so happy? I'm so happy for you. And you're not actually smiling. You're just like, or you can dig down deep and recognize that that root of bitterness and envy actually needs to be plucked or maybe if we're going with the image, it needs to be scalped. And the only person that can do that is the Lord. I remember seasons of my life where I've been single and I was bitter and I was envious. There was one summer that there were seven weddings that I went to within three months and I was in three of them within six weeks of each other. And man, I was watering my own grass because it's really not fun to attend that many weddings and go, I'm so happy for you. It's so great. I just wish I had somebody like you. It'd be so great. We have to water our own grass. And it was really intentional to submit that before the Lord and say, Lord, where is this bitterness coming from? Where is this envy? Where is this discontentment coming from? And I quickly realized that it was because I believed I wasn't enough without somebody next to me. And I was trying to find my enoughness in my relational status. And all the Lord wanted was my enoughness to be in him. And so I needed to go through a season where the Lord could figuratively scalp me and churn up the soil within me, and it did not feel good, but oh, was it good for me. 
And then he began to water and put the right soil and the right nutrients in me so that what could grow in me was confident identity in who I am in him and not in who I am with anybody around me or who I choose to date or not date. What does it look like for the gospel to shape singleness in our life is we need to water our own grass. And we cannot be obsessed with what somebody else's grass look like. And even though I'm not quite married yet, I will tell you that most married people will tell you that marriage isn't easy. And so if you do think it's greener on the other side, every married person will tell you, nope. Or most married people. Sorry, I don't mean to speak for all married people. We need to water our own grass. Single people are like, okay, get off me. All right, married people. What does the gospel say to us about how we should shape our view of singleness? The first thing I believe it says is we need to stop trying to fix what isn't broken. Sin, or singleness is a gift, it's not a disease. 1 Corinthians 7, 7 says, I, this is Paul again talking, he says, I wish that all of you were as I am. He's single, okay? He says, I wish that all of you were single like I am, but each of you has your own gift from God, and one has this gift and another has that. Singles are not less than. Single people are not broken and they do not need you to fix them. I spend a lot of my time in places with well-meaning people who would look at me when I was single and they'd go, how are you still single? Oh my goodness, we need to find you a man. Okay. <laughs> what are we going to do about this? As if suddenly like my relational status was their problem. What are we going to do about this? Have you met my grandson? And I'm like, mm, <laughs> probably not. Because it's not about being broken. Single people are not broken. You just heard it. This is a gift. You just heard it. They have this opportunity to walk in undivided devotion. This isn't something to be fixed. Not to mention any single time someone said that to me when I was really trying to work on my enoughness, all it communicated was, yeah, you really aren't anybody until you have somebody around you. And you're probably looking at me like, well, that wasn't my intention when I said that to somebody. That's okay. Well-intended people say things like that, and that's what we hear as single people. I'm working on my enoughness, not my enoughness, all right? And we need to look at them and we need to give them what they actually need, which is not fixing a problem because it's not actually a problem. So you're like, well, you pose a really interesting dilemma. Now what are we supposed to do with them instead? I believe that the other thing that the gospel says about how uh, married people should shape their view of singles is that we cannot treat marriage like an entryway into community. Romans 12.5 says, so, we, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all of the others. We cannot treat marriage or being in a relationship, for those of you maybe who aren't married but are pursuing that, we cannot treat being in a relationship and being in a marriage as the entry point into community. I'm a very image-driven person, so if we're pretending that my community is sitting around my big, beautiful farmhouse wooden table in my kitchen, you guys are like, we don't care what your kitchen looks like. So picture my kitchen table, right? And if the community is anybody that I invite to come sit at that table, it would be a real big problem if the only people I invited to that table right now were engaged people. Because first of all, there'd be like mm, three people there. And second of all, I'd be like, guys, I have this problem with planning a wedding. And they'd be like, same. What are we going to do about it? And all of us are like, none of us have ever done this before. I'm not really sure. When we choose to only invite people who look like us to sit at our table, we only get people who look like us and we miss out on the diversity that is supposed to be occurring in our community, that God has created and purposed to be a part of our community. 
And not only does that mean that we miss out on the diversity, it means it's wildly damaging to the people that we look at and we say, my table's really big, but it's not big enough for you. It just could be too awkward if you come sit here, and so I just don't really know what to do, and so maybe you probably can't come sit at my table. That's what it communicates. What would it look like if we stopped treating marriage or relational status as an entry point into community, and we just let community be the beautiful, diverse body that God created? Here's the thing that I know to be true, is there are reasons and there are seasons why we should walk in the same lane as somebody who's, going, who's done the same thing as us. Here's what I mean by that. I'm wildly grateful that my fiance and I are doing premarital counseling with a married couple. It would be really interesting to try to do that with a single person, right? You're like, hey, what do you guys say about this? And they're like, well, I'm, I don't really know. Never really done it. There are reasons and seasons to do life with people who are in the same reason or season as you. But that is not the one qualifier of how we participate in community. It can't be because it excommunicates so many people from being able to sit at the table. We want our table to be beautiful and diverse in the way that God has created it. And if I can just for a moment tell you that this counts for every bias that we have. Same goes for race, same goes for age, same goes for gender, and any other thing we create biases about. If all we do is invite people who look like us to sit at the table, it's really boring and it's really harmful to the people that we are not inviting to the table. Married people, what would it look like if you stopped treating marriage like an entry point into community and you just let people be people? You just let people be people and you let them come and you let them sit at your table. Some of the best marriage advice that I ever received was when I was single with no prospects and I was given an opportunity to come sit at a married person's table. And it wasn't under the context of like, let me just tell you how you're gonna be a good wife someday when you meet somebody. It was absolutely under the context of let's just do life together. Let me just watch how you guys are married together and how you exist. Some of the most beautiful pictures of relationships I have are from watching from the sidelines people just exist and be in community together and they let me sit in their house while they were married. I don't mean to toot my own horn, but some of the best advice I've ever given relational-wise was when I was single. I'm very unbiased sitting back here. Hey, you're actually being really selfish. And they're like, oh my gosh, I'm being so selfish. How did I not know? <laughs> when we let other people sit at the table, we get different perspectives. And that is how we were created to be one body sitting together, not isolating other people based on their relational status. So what does the gospel say about singleness to everyone? I believe it says that we need to fight to have equal concern for every member of the body. 1 Corinthians 12, 18, and 25 says, but in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. There should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. So I'll tell you a story. I met my very best friend my freshman year of college. We were probably sitting in that same room, sweating at the same time. And I met her because she lived down the hall from me. Her name's Tori. And we became really fast friends. And that same year, Tori met who is now her, future, her, her current husband, not future husband, they're married. She met Reed, and Reed went to a different college. And so because Tori was important to me, Reed became important to me because he was a member of the same body. Are you tracking with me? Yep. Yep, he was important to Tori, and Tori was important to me, therefore Reed is important to me. And so I fought to have equal concern for him, even though I had no reason to. He didn't go to my college. We, I knew nothing about him. And so I remember being really intentional when Tori would say, hey, Reed's coming on campus today. I would try to make sure that I could find time to go see Reed, just get to know him a little bit. 
I found out that he worked at a daycare and I had used to work at a daycare and so we would swap stories about like kids sneezing in our faces and how unfortunate that can be. We started laughing and like having this really great dialogue because we're like, oh my gosh, a kid has sneezed on your face before? Amazing, we have so much in common. What did you do? Did you sanitize your face? I sure did. So we got to have these conversations and fight to have equal concern. And I'm not that holy. I wasn't like, ooh, 1 Corinthians 12, let me go talk to Reed. It's talking about having, fighting to have concern for equal or for everybody in the body equally just meant that I was doing my best to love him like I would love anybody else. And I started to get to know him, and we gave him a nickname, and he would keep coming to campus, and, and he did the same for me. It was about a year later that I was sitting in Tori's dorm room when I got the phone call that my grandpa had passed away. And grief is a very strange thing to process through already. On its own, grief is really bizarre, but grief is super bizarre when everybody that knows the person that you're mourning is nowhere near you and I was miles away from my family, and nobody on my campus had ever met my grandpa because I'm a freshman in college or a sophomore in college. And I just remember being so disoriented, and so I just left my stuff in a room, and I went for a walk. I don't know how long I was gone until I got a phone call, and it was Tori, and she said, hey, why don't you come back to campus? Reed and I have dinner for you. You need to eat. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm grieving, those feelings are so bizarre and strange that you just need someone to tell you what to do. So I'm like, eat, yes, okay. So I go back to campus and I walk into the cafeteria and they had already pulled my food for me so I didn't have to talk to anybody, which was really awesome. Sorry. It was really awesome. So I went and I sat with them and Tori just reached her hand across the table and she put her hand on mine. And she said, I love you. I'm here for you, whatever you need. And Reed reached his hand across the table and he put his car keys in front of me. And he said, I have a full tank of gas and my car is yours if you want it or I will drive you wherever you want to go. And it was in that moment that I was like, I know where I need to go, I need to go to the beach, I can't drive myself. And they were like, great, so they hopped in the car with me and they drove me to the beach, which was like an hour, hour and a half away. And I remember they just let me cry for as long as I needed to by the ocean. And when I was finished and probably a hot mess, I walked back over to them and they looked at me and they said, are you hungry? One of our favorite places to eat is just down the street. Let's let me take you there, let me buy you second dinner. I guess we had already eaten. Grief is a strange thing. And so they did, and they asked me questions about my grandpa. They said things like, what was your favorite part about him? Why don't you tell me more about your grandpa? Which I didn't realize I needed, because grief is a strange thing, and you don't know what to ask for. And so I shared stories about my grandpa as I cried, some of my favorite things about him. And then it kind of turned into joking with each other, and they picked that up, and so they started cracking some really great jokes. And I got to heal by laughing with them and eating good food. And it was in that moment that I recognized, it wasn't in that moment, it was later on that I looked back and recognized they were both fighting to have equal concern for me. And when I look back on that story, what I realize is that one of two things happened that day. Either Reed gave up his entire night of whatever he had had planned to drive 40 minutes to give me his car, or he gave up date night with my best friend to give up his car. And either way, not one of them looked at me or looked at each other and said, geez, I just wish she wasn't single and there was somebody else here to do this for her. Not one of them said, I wish there was a guy here that was her boyfriend who could pay for her gas and pay for her food. It wasn't about relational status. It was about fighting to have equal concern for each other. And in that moment, they fought and they sacrificed and they gave up things so that they could fight and be part of my life and have equal concern for me. And our whole life together has been this beautiful back and forth, fighting to have equal concern for each other. And you know what's really beautiful? It's that it's never been contingent on whether or not I had a boyfriend. 
I came to Reed and Tori's apartment sobbing my eyes out when I broke up with somebody. I came to Reed and Tori's apartment when I met Jordan and I brought him and I got to introduce him to them. And it's never been contingent on my relational status. It was never like, oh, this is super awkward. I wish you wouldn't be here. You're single and this is weird. Or like, we're married now. Can you just like have equal concern with somebody else? It's never been about that with them. And that, I believe, is a beautiful picture of what the community of Christ is supposed to look like. We need to fight to have equal concern for each other, no matter our relational status. And same as last time, no matter our race, no matter our gender, no matter our generation, this goes against all biases, that we just get to fight to have equal concern that everybody gets to sit around the table. What does it look like for the gospel to shape singleness in all of our lives? It means that we fight for each other. And we don't let anything be the reason why we stop fighting for each other. And you're like, well, guess what? That's going to be really uncomfortable, and I don't know if I want to do it. Welcome to the club. You signed up for a very uncomfortable club when you signed up for Jesus. Walking in relationship with Jesus is never comfortable. In fact, I figured out that when I'm most uncomfortable is typically when I'm most in line with what the Lord has asked me to do. Life with Jesus is wildly uncomfortable. You might start thinking about what it would look like to fight to have equal concern, and you're like, if we turn couples game night into also inviting the singles, what if we have uneven teams? What are we going to do? You're going to get over it. You're going to figure it out. It's really going to be fine. Well, if I invite single people over to my house, they might see that marriage and in our heads, right? Why don't you let them decide if they're uncomfortable? Why don't you let them decide if they have questions about marriage? Why don't you fight to have equal concern for each other and you just let the uncomfortableness come and you take it as it comes? Because here's what I also know to be true is that when we're wildly uncomfortable, we're also smack dab in the middle of so much grace and love and kindness and so much Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I would rather be smack dab in the middle of that than just be super comfortable. But there are days that I have to remind myself that I'd rather be smack dab in the middle of that than be super comfortable. We have to be intentional about the way that we treat each other, singles and marrieds alike. We have to be intentional about the way that we treat each other and intentional about the way that we fight for each other because comfortability isn't promised. I, I was reading this book by this woman named Rebecca McLaughlin and she's talking about relationships and whatnot and she says this quote, she says, I was reading the book of Acts at the time of this conversation that she's talking about and she says, I observed that while the first Christians faced every kind of suffering, even being stoned to death, there was one struggle that they did not face, loneliness. If we reduce Christian community to sexual relationships in the nuclear family, we are utterly failing to deliver on biblical ethics. She goes on to say, single people are vital to the church family, which is the, fam which is the primary family unit in Christian terms and should experience deep love and fellowship with other believers. Single people should experience deep love and fellowship with other people. She says where church culture inhibits this by overemphasizing marriage and parenting, and please hear my heart, there's nothing wrong with marriage and parenting. I took furious notes a few weeks ago during How the Gospel Shapes Parenting. I plan on doing the same during How the Gospel Shapes Marriage. There's nothing wrong with it. But she goes on to say this, she says, Christians need to fight for a culture change and embody the biblical reality that the local church is truly their family. Single people are vital to the church, just like marriage and parenting is vital to the church. But we cannot choose to look at these and unlook at the others. 
We have to allow them to be a part of the family and fight to have equal concern. Because imagine as you let this play out that this goes beyond the walls of the church. We're talking about this conversation as it pertains to church mainly, which means we're talking about it primarily as it pertains to believers, am I right? Thinking about having believers over to my table and whatnot, but imagine what this communicates to the world when we begin to embody this and live as if the gospel has shaped this part of our life. Single people, imagine what it communicates to those who you work with, that you live in undivided devotion to the Lord. They might ask you questions like, man, how do you have so much time for the Lord? And you go, whether permanent or temporary, I know that this season is for undivided devotion to the Lord. And they might say, wow, tell me about that God. I really want to know. And you're going to be like, wow, come on over. Boom, discipleship. You guys are like, it never happens that easy, right? But that's how it starts. It starts because you're setting the example. Single people, what would it look like if every single action that you took was not rooted in bitterness and envy and discontentment? I'm telling you right now, non-believers are gonna look at you and be like, how do you have that? How can I have what you have? I don't wanna be bitter or envious. And you'll be like, well, I know this man named Jesus and my enoughness is in him and it's not in my relationships. Do you wanna hear about him? Boom, discipleship. You guys are like, it doesn't happen that easy, but that's how it starts. It starts because you're setting the example for someone to look at you and say, I want what you have. Teach me. Married people, what would it look like if we stopped addressing single based on their singleness and we just started addressing single people based on their identity in Christ? We started edifying the things that are good about them that the Lord has created in them. And instead of trying to fix them, we just invited them to come sit at our table. Imagine what that communicates to the non-believers that you do life with. Wow. Somebody else is identifying that my identity is only in Christ. I don't need to have somebody else to come and sit at their table. How beautiful. I want to come sit at their table every day. And you're like, great, bring your Bible. I'm going to teach you about Jesus. Boom, discipleship, right? You guys are tracking on. It's not that easy, but that's how it starts. Imagine what it says to your neighbor who's next door and is like, hey, who's that girl that's always coming over to your house? Is that your daughter? You're like, no, it's just somebody from my community I'm loving on. Well, that's weird. You let her come over for the holidays? Yeah, I do. You let, you let her come over all the time? Yeah, I do. Anybody's welcome at my table. Imagine the dialogue in their head that starts to think, well, I'm really different than you. Maybe I'm invited to sit at your table. Hey, can I come sit at your table? And you're like, yes, you can. Do you want to meet Jesus? And they're like, yes, I do. And then you guys have this moment, right? Boom. Discipleship. It's not that easy, but that's how it starts. You are setting an example to a world that is desperate for that beautiful, diverse body to include them because they are hurting and they are broken and the gospel is for them too. Imagine what it would look like if we fought to have equal concern for every member of the body, including the non-believers, and we showed up for them when their grandpa dies, and we gave them our car when their grandpa dies, and we take them to the beach when their grandpa dies, and we communicate to them that I don't care about what you've done in your life. I don't care about who you are or who you're in relationship with. I care that you feel the love of Jesus. And I'm here to bring that to you because I'm fighting to have equal concern for every member of the body. And you're probably not gonna say it like that because that's a little bit of a Jesus juke, right? So you might just communicate it a little bit differently. But imagine what that would communicate to a world that's desperate and broken and searching for the love of Jesus. They might start inviting themselves to your table, right? Imagine what that would look like. Imagine what that communicates to a world that's hurting and broken when we embody what it looks like to look like the diverse, beautiful body of Christ that he intended.
I believe that it will change the world. I believe that every single message we hear about how the gospel shapes, if we take it in and we truly allow it to turn around and become part of our action, we will be embodying the gospel to everyone around us. And isn't that the goal? Isn't that the goal? Is to go and make disciples, right? It doesn't have to be difficult. It has to start somewhere. I'm gonna pray for you guys. Will you guys stand with me this morning? Jesus, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for Paul's word to the church in Corinth. I thank you that it applies to us today. Lord, I'm so grateful that it's your desire for our community to be so beautiful and diverse and different than what we look like. Lord, I ask that you would give the single people in the room, God, an opportunity to just live into that undivided devotion. Lord, I ask that you would meet them in those spaces as they give their heart to you, as they give their time to you, God, whether permanent or temporary in this season of singleness, God, I ask that you would meet them in their undivided devotion. Lord, that you would grow them, that you would shape them, that you would change them. Lord, I pray for the singles who are watering their own grass. God, I ask that you would communicate your truth of your worth and your identity and your enoughness in them. Lord, I pray that you would help them silence the voice that needs to find that anywhere else, Lord, that they would find it in you and that you would partner with them to grow that grass. Lord, I thank you for the marrieds in the room. Lord, for the wisdom that they bring to the table. God, I just ask that you would be with them and that you would give them the wherewithal to be intentional about their conversation with others. Lord, that instead of trying to fix what isn't broken, God, that they would invite people into their space, that they would share their life, Lord, and that you would teach them what it looks like to do that with ease. God, I thank you so much that together, singles and marrieds alike, God, that we get to fight to have equal concern for every single person you've created. God, I pray that you would give us an opportunity to do that, Lord, for the believer, for the non-believer. God, teach us what it looks like to be an example. Teach us what it looks like to have those moments for the beginning of discipleship relationships. God, teach us what it looks like. Have that trigger in our spirits, God, that is just always ready for an opportunity to fight, to have equal concern. God, we're so grateful that our body gets to include single people and it gets to include married people. God, would you remind us of each other, make us aware of each other every single day. We love you so much, Lord. Would you be with us this week as we go and live it out? In your name we pray. Amen.